Uh, it's 2019. We're not supposed to believe in miracles, are we? Um, so, on one level, the question, can a scientist believe in miracles, is fairly straightforward. You're literally looking at it right now. I'm believing in miracles. Ta-da! Um, but hasn't, scientists, hasn't science shown us that all these things don't happen? Right? Hasn't scientists sort of pulled the rug out of all of this? I don't know why I'm folding back, but there's no one on the sound desk, so we'll just... Good luck, everybody. Um, so let me start with that. Actually, there's something about this objection which is backwards. Miracles assume that there is a business as usual in nature. For there to be a miracle, you have to be able to say something has happened which was beyond nature's power to do. That's the whole point. For that to be true, there has to be such a thing as the stuff that nature does. There has to be an usual order of nature, business as usual. So if the very claim of a miracle depends on the idea that there is a natural order which does natural things and has natural powers and abilities, then science discovering that natural order actually can't be evidence against a miracle. This is a fairly general principle, actually. If this implies that, that can't be evidence against this. Right? If miracle claims imply that there is an order to nature, the order of nature can't be evidence against miracle claims. As someone might say, scientists discovered that these things don't really happen. Well, really? We did that? When did we discover that death is usually a fairly permanent situation? Right? Did Professor Death discover that at some point and name it after himself? They knew that. They knew that better than us. When uh, Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant with Jesus, he does not say, oh, I suppose sometimes babies just happen. Right? They knew how babies happened in the ordinary course of nature. And so the most that science could say is that if the virgin birth happened, it must have been a miracle, which is exactly the point. But nevertheless, there's a question here. Why would God do miracles at all if, you've, if God has taken the, order, uh, you know, the effort to set up the ordinary orders of, order of nature, the laws of nature? Why break them? Why did Jesus do miracles? There's a fantastic uh, sketch, which I wish I could show you, but it's a bit too long. It's by Rowan Atkinson, um, who's Mr. Bean, but it's not a Mr. Bean sketch. He, he comes onto stage dressed up in the full regalia as a bishop and starts reading from the King James, of course, uh, about the Jesus turning water into wine, which we read about in John. Uh, and partway through, he goes off script. Right? Jesus turns the water into wine. Uh, and then they said, uh, saith unto the Lord, how did you do that? And all were amazed and said, this guy is good. He should turn professional. And his servants did press him, saying, go on, Lord, give us another one. Is Jesus just displaying his power, showing his abilities? Is he just doing a magic show but with real magic? There's an answer in this passage, uh, and it might not be the first answer that you thought of. Uh, to hear it, we're going to need to put on the ears of Jesus' listeners, uh, to those ears that are steeped in the language of the Old Testament. There are some phrases that uh, modern ears might hear differently from those ancient ears. So let's get into them. There's five, five titles of Jesus in this particular passage. We need to backtrack slightly. So Stuart talked last year, uh, last week, sorry, uh, from Luke 4.18. Uh, 
Jesus stands up in the synagogue, synagogue and announces uh, that, uh, and quotes from the prophet Isaiah saying, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. We talked about that last week. In this passage, there's one of those Bible words. Anointed, which we don't tend to use Monday to Saturday. Right? I think we often hear it as appointed or chosen, um, which is close. What it literally means is to pour oil on someone's head. As the priests were preparing to serve in the temple, they would be anointed with oil, signifying that they were chosen for a special role. But if you're one of Jesus' listeners and you've got the Old Testament ringing in your ears, then there's something else that this word brings to mind, especially if you put it near the word, the Lord, the Lord's anointed. Who is the Lord's anointed? Well, we see it all over the Old Testament in, in 1 Samuel 10, when God chooses Saul to be king. He says, has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Later, David is anointed as king. But even then, David will not do anything against Saul or let his men do anything against Saul because, the second one there, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing against my master Saul, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Two for one in that passage. When Solomon later becomes king, he prays to God, O Lord God, do not turn away the face of you, the, turn away the face of your anointed one. He wants God's help as he's anointed. And throughout the Psalms, whenever David is writing a psalm and he talks about the Lord's anointed, he's talking about himself as the king. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. If you've got your Old Testament ears on and you hear Jesus say that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed him, it's going to spring off, it's going to trigger off a memory of these passages. The Lord's anointed is the King. Now that one's slightly more subtle, but there are more explicit ones later. Uh, In verse 41, it says, Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not let them speak because they knew that he was the Messiah. There's another one of those Bible words, right? I think if you ask 10 people on the street what Messiah means, most of them would say Saviour. But that's not what it means, as some of you hopefully know. The word actually just means the anointed one. It's all of those other passages again, but it's more specifically a title at this time. It was actually common to refer to the promised Messiah as King Messiah. If you put the title King uh, Messiah on someone, all of those references about the king are there as well. A third one, as we turn to the same passage, to Luke 4 verse 40... It says, at sunset the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of illness, laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. What does that actually mean? I mean, it's, this is literally a joke from a comedian who got upset. If we're all God's children, what's so special about Jesus? Right? 
Uh, if we're all part of God's family, doesn't God have sons by the tons? Um, just to confuse us here, there are a couple of almost but not quite answers kind of floating around. Um, is it because Jesus is born of a virgin, that he doesn't have an earthly father, and so literally God is his father, which makes him the son of God? I mean, that's correct, of course. Or perhaps son of God is really pointing towards God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is the divine Son of God the Father. Those two ideas are correct, of course, but not quite what Jesus' listeners would have heard. You've got to put your Old Testament ears on. And actually, in the Old Testament, there's a number of things that Son of God means, and we need to unpack those a little bit. Okay? Um, The first one, a child of God is to be in the family business. Uh, in, there's a fantastic passage, I love this. In Job 41, it talks about an arrow, as in you know, a bow and arrow. But it doesn't call it an arrow, it literally calls it the son of the bow. The idea here is that um, the bow is directing the arrow. There's a picture there of being, you know, um, there's a time when you sort of hold your children and direct them as best you can, and there's a time when you kind of release them in the world. And if we push that metaphor further, we hope they don't kill anyone. Um, there's a time when you hold them and a time when you release them, but the idea is that the bow directs the arrow. Right? This is a point in human history where you generally followed your parents' occupation. Right? Thank goodness that doesn't happen these days. Yeah, remember? Dad's a pastor, I'm preaching. Isn't it? So ironic. Anyway, right, if, you were the, if you were the child of a baker, you were a baker. That's just what you did. So when God talks about being a child of God, it means that you are in God's family business. You are directed by God. You are trained by him. We see this actually in the New Testament. In Luke 6, if you just flip over the page, Jesus says, love your enemies and do good to them. Then you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. God is in the family business of being kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. So if you are a child of God, that's your family business too. So love your enemies. But there's a more specific use in the Old Testament as well, going up to the next level. The Son of God is the nation of Israel. In uh, Exodus 4, Moses tells Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go, that he may worship me. That's a specific narrowing of this this broader sense. The idea is that the nation of Israel will be the, the child of God. They will be the ones trained up in the family business. They will follow God. Right? This is a blessing and a curse. The children are held to a higher standard, of course. But there's something even more specific in the way that the Old Testament uses the phrase, the son of God. If you want to sort of bluff your way through the Old Testament, I know it's long, right? The important bits to sort of prick up your ears are where God makes a promise. Because that promise is going to hang over and hold together the entire narrative from from then on. The most important ones are the ones to Abraham. Abraham is promised a great nation, land, and to be a blessing to all nations. Moses is promised that obedience to the law will bring blessing on the people. 
And those promises hang over the entire history of Israel from then. So let me give you a quick visual summary of the Old Testament history of Israel with, in the context of these promises. Basically, it goes well, it goes well, then it goes badly, then it goes badly, and then they're in Babylon, in exile. All right? Actually, it's probably a bit more like this, but you get the idea. Right? The promises are there. They move towards them as, as Joshua moves through the promised land, as they set up a kingdom, as God gives them uh, rest from their enemies. Saul is made king, but he's a bit of a disaster. And then David is chosen as king, and he faces all kinds of danger before he is eventually put on the throne. And their enemies are defeated. And the Ark of the Covenant comes to Jerusalem. It seems like everything's coming together in terms of those promises. There is land. They are a great nation. There is blessing. And if you want the Old Testament to have a happy ending, you need to stop reading it to Samuel 10. Just, just don't go any... It's, um, but here's the point. The very peak, the top of the Old Testament is when David is crowned king. And it's at precisely this point that God makes a new promise. Not a promise of a great nation made to one guy who doesn't have any children, Abraham. Or a promise of blessing for obedience to a nation who were just pulled kicking and screaming out of Egypt. Right? At a, the peak, as close as they get to the promises, God makes a new promise. Right? In 2 Samuel 7, a, a chapter that you should have uh, right at the front of your mind. God says this to David. Right? He says, The Lord declares... To you, that the Lord Himself will establish a house to you, for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish His kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. I will be His father, and He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, who, removed, who I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, there's, there's kind of two ways to make an everlasting dynasty like that. You either have a succession of kings one after another or at some point in that line will come an eternal king. And that is precisely how this, this particular promise is interpreted in Isaiah. We usually only read this passage around Christmas time, but listen to it closely. There's Isaiah 9, another famous bit of the Old Testament. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his governance, of government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with righteousness and justice, justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. A son who will reign on David's throne forever. That is everything that comes to mind when someone calls Jesus the Son of God. 
When the disciple, disciple Nathaniel first meets Jesus in John chapter 1, he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Those two went together. And so that is the final ultimate meaning of Son of God. If you've got those Old Testament years, that's just the promised King. Whoop, that one went a bit sideways, never mind. There's a pattern for me. The Lord's anointed is the King. The Messiah is the King. The King Messiah. And the Son of God is the true King of Israel. Incidentally, this tells us something about why Jesus doesn't particularly want these titles from the mouths of demons just yet. Now, there's two things going on. There's a number of reasons why Jesus tells them to be quiet. Never a bad idea to tell a demon to shut up. Right? But more specifically, here's what's going on, I think. Uh, I'm going to point this way. Um, here's basically where Jesus moved through his life. There's Jerusalem in the south, uh, Bethlehem slightly to the south of that. We're up in the north in Galilee, there's Nazareth where Jesus was born, where he was in the synagogue in the last chapter, and he's moved now up to Capernaum. Uh, this is roughly sort of Sydney to Newcastle kind of distances. <coughs> there's a, the, actually the largest region, uh, the largest city in this region, Galilee, is one called Sephorus, which as you can see is quite close to Nazareth. It's not mentioned in the Bible, but it is mentioned in Josephus for the following reason. Around about the time Jesus was born, there was an uprising. They were sick of Rome, and someone declared that they were now in charge. They were the new king. Uh, and the Romans did what the Romans always do, and crushed it. But not quite well enough, because ten years later, in 6 AD, he had another go. Incidentally, his name was Judas. So, you know, nothing but trouble. Um, in about 6 AD, they had another go, and this time the Romans weren't take any, taking any chances. They burned Sephorus to the ground and took a lot of its inhabitants into slavery. Now, just to give you an idea of the distances and the times involved, that's like if when John Howard became Prime Minister in, like, 1996, uh, there was an uprising around here, and so he sent the military in to burn Norellan to the ground. That's roughly the times and distances involved. Very much in people's memories at the time. Okay? This is not the time to walk around the Roman Empire and have people call you the king. Especially if, like Jesus, you're not actually the kind of king that the Romans would be worried about. And so, this is why Jesus is careful with those titles. Luke, however, as we are seeing, is putting them all over this passage. But there's something more going on here. Every now and then Jesus takes this sort of framework of what it means to be the Son of God, which they understood from the Old Testament, and just blows the top off it. Just goes over and above anything that was there in the Old Testament. There's some great examples in John, but here's an example from Luke, from Luke chapter 10. Jesus says, No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and whoever the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, that is not on this scale. If you want to hear these claims for the first time, here's something that I've been sort of entertaining myself with for a while. Just imagine we had a visiting speaker at church who, who walked up the front and said about himself the kind of things Jesus says about himself throughout the Bible. So, this one, for example, suppose someone comes up the front and says, uh, you know, hi everyone, 
good to be here. Um, uh, my hope is that you'll know no, more about God the Father today. Of course, no one really knows God the Father except me. Right? Um, and anyone I choose to reveal God the Father to. Right? At that point, okay, the microphone needs to go dead. And if you're in the front two rows, it's your job to take them out. All right? And just hit them. Right? And they might not like it, but that's it. There's a load of these in John. John's fantastic for this, right? I and the Father are one. Right? Uh, Jesus says in John 5, um, uh, God the Father doesn't judge anyone. He's left all of that up to the Son so that they may honour the Son in the same way they honour the Father. Imagine someone up here saying, God doesn't judge anyone. He's left all that up to me uh, so that you will honour me the same way you honour God. Right? That is clearly just blowing the top off these Old Testament categories. And we see one of those, one of those over and above titles in this passage, in Luke 4.33. In the synagogue, synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What human gets the title, the Holy One of God? Right? In the Old Testament, angels are sometimes called holy ones, plural, or a holy one. But the holy one, especially the holy one of Israel, is God. Always. So here's the thing. Who is the true king of Israel? When Samuel anoints Saul... God explains to Samuel that it is not you who they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Who is the true king of Israel? It's God. It's always been God. Sure, he let someone have that title down on earth. But if we look, even after God blesses the kingship of David, as we saw in Isaiah, he says, I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator. Your king. And so when Jesus comes to proclaim, uh, this is another one of those great titles, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Actually, there's, there's another one of those Bible phrases, right? You can hear that phrase a lot of times and never really understand it. It's fairly straightforward, actually. The kingdom of God is a kingdom whose king is God. The kingdom of God asked, what will be the world like when God is king? When all earthly fallible rulers bow the knee and God takes charge, what will he do? That is the picture of the kingdom of God. It's these titles. The Lord's anointed, the Messiah, the Holy One, the Son of God, the kingdom of God that are all over this passage. And it helps us to understand the complete picture of what the miracles mean. Because there are three great offices, three great roles in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and king. These are the great uh, ways to serve God. A prophet speaks truth, usually when it's unpopular. You listen to a prophet. A priest is a go-between. They do what you cannot. They enter the holy place of the temple and offer the sacrifices there. 
You trust in a priest to do what you cannot do for yourself. And you follow a king. The king sets the example and leads. These are three sort of iconic, these are archetypes. These are all over literature, right? Um, Gandalf, Frodo and Aragorn. Or if you like, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia. Truth, beauty and goodness. These These are iconic roles. The key to understanding Jesus is that he is all three. The key to understanding what Jesus did is that he brings all three of these together and perfectly, once and for all. He is the prophet who is the word of God. The priest who is the perfect sacrifice. And the king who is the king of kings. God in the flesh. We can use these to get a full picture of the miracles. In John chapter 10, Jesus tells his opponents, even if you don't believe in me, believe in the works. When, God, when Jesus does a miracle in that mode, one of the prophetic miracle, it endorses his message, gives him the stamp of approval. You should believe him. Because he was the one who could actually do miracles. A priestly miracle does for you what you cannot do for yourself. It's a miracle of salvation. But a wonderful example is the parting of the Red Sea where God says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That is God's way of saying, see all this water that's moved? None of you moved a teaspoon. Right? The book of Hebrews talks about Jesus is our great high priest. That kind of miracle you trust. You stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. But what I want you to see is that these are the first miracles in Luke and what Luke has surrounded them with is the language of the king, the titles of the king, the kingdom of God. The true king comes in human flesh. And what does he do? What example does he leave for us? He does not seek fame. He does not seek an audience with the emperor. He doesn't raise an army. He doesn't get rich, he doesn't marry into power, he doesn't travel through the empire with his amazing loaves and fishes show, he doesn't spell his name in the stars, he doesn't seek the approval of Rome, and he doesn't seek the approval of Athens either. God walked among us, what did he do? How did he spend his evening? At sunset the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. When Jesus announced in the synagogue his plan to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. When John asks Jesus, are you the one? And Jesus says, Tell John what you have seen and heard. The the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. This isn't just his personal agenda. This is your king. Kings lead. You follow a king. If you see in the heat of battle your king charging that way, sword drawn, then it's a good indication that you should probably charge that way as well. This is the way that Jesus is charging. Not that you have his power, of course, you not being 
God in the flesh. But your king has laid out and is now demonstrating the program for the kingdom of God. This is his heart for the world. The miracles of Jesus are not magic tricks. They are marching orders. We need to keep all three of these roles in front of us without losing sight of any of them. Jesus, who is not a prophet, is just another religious opinion. Take it or leave it. He did not leave that option open to us. A a Jesus who is not a priest is a Jesus who comes to us in all of our fallenness and our brokenness and leaves us there with a couple of good bits of advice, uh, but that's about it, right? This is the sort of yet another social revolutionary Jesus. If you're on board with this, then just sort of grab a great big bag and fill it with all your best intentions and good luck changing the world, right? I'd like to suggest that if... Uh, unchanged, fallen human nature and our best intentions are precisely what got us into this mess in the first place. Jesus the priest is here to change you. But a Jesus who is not a king is the founder of a social club where we all get together, uh, we hear some nice ideas and we all spend some time reminding each other that I'm going to heaven, you're going to heaven, we're all going to be okay. Good. Same time next week. The good news of the kingdom of God is that by being transformed by the Spirit, we can join our King in turning back suffering and evil. To actually be a force for good, actually be a net positive, to actually bring our world in some way closer to its ultimate good in God. When Jesus announced the kingdom of God, he didn't just mean that he'll fix everything when he gets back, although he will. When Revelation 21 says he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away, that is the vision of the kingdom of God coming in its fullness. But Jesus said it starts here. It is breaking in. He said the kingdom of God is among you. We are called to it today to bring whatever of that future we can bring here. That is why you were saved. The early early church understood this very well. In Acts, we hear that the church fed the hungry by sharing all that they had. When the other disciples meet Paul, quote, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. That was at the top of their priorities. James tells us to honour the poor, visit the sick, and look after orphans and widows. In the centuries after Jesus, Christians became infamous for looking after abandoned babies, feeding the poor, and setting up the first free hospitals, to the point where, in the 4th century, the Emperor Julian complains that it is the Christians' benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, that have done the most to increase this atheism. He calls Christians atheists because they don't believe in the Roman gods. (laughs) Kind of funny. He also calls them Galileans, as you'll see. It is disgraceful that the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. And all men see that our people lack aid from us. There's a Roman emperor whinging that these Christians are feeding the poor so well that it's making the Roman Empire look bad. That is something to be famous for. That is the kingdom of God. Let me wrap this up. I started by saying that miracles only make sense if there is business as usual in the universe. In our world, business as usual 
involves an awful lot of suffering and evil and death. It will not always be so. The miracles of Jesus point to the part of this world that is not permanent, that will pass away. And that future perfect kingdom of God is breaking in now. It's not just for the end of time. Jesus' miracles are not a temporary reprieve for a couple of people who happen to live in the first century after which the world returns to business as usual. That is not the point. The miracles of Jesus are a taste of God's future here and now. You sit at the feet of a prophet. You put your faith in the work of a priest. And you follow a king. You set the prisoners free. Be the eyes for the blind. Feed the hungry. And proclaim the news of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son. Thank you for all he did here on earth. We pray that we may follow him and follow you. Give us your heart. Amen.